Thank you for that blessing of praise and worship. Many of you are kind of watched the uh, funeral yesterday of Elizabeth Edwards and just out of curiosity or maybe out of mourning with that family um, to see what the funeral would be like. Um, of course, the group from Westmont uh, got a lot of press, or Westboro rather. Um, in fact, I'd like to speak a little bit about that. Um, and, and while we're listening, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, First uh, John chapter 4, for those who may not know, uh, there's a group going by the name Westboro Baptist Church out of uh, a Kansas area uh, that uh, had planned to uh, protest uh, at the funeral and, uh, in fact, made this statement, uh, news release, uh, this past Wednesday. I don't want to read the whole bit of it, um, but just bring out a couple of thoughts. The title of it, and, and bold, large print, God Hates Elizabeth Edwards. WBC will pick at her funeral at 8010 United Methodist in Raleigh. Um, to wit, flee her example. Its latter end is disease and death and orphaned children. Um, a line in this, I, again, a lot of it is just, I don't want to promote more, but um, one line is, her smashed mouth assault on his deity Sovereignty and infallibility brought more God smacks upon her, and she dug into a perverse position all the deeper. Elizabeth is now a resident of hell, where her rebellion rage will take full flower. She rejoins the dead child who beat her there and has seen the face of a grievous misconduct in neglecting her non-eligible duty to him. Um... I don't know and I don't think that Elizabeth Edwards is maybe a a great bastion of truth, but it doesn't matter. Um, There's some things that though are right in maybe stating a statement that can be totally wrong in how it's said. The gospel involves two things. It involves the content, that of truth, but also involves a spirit. The spirit of the gospel. And whether or not this group is right in anything that they said, there is an attitude reflected in these words that is not of Christ. It is not of the spirit of love or of the gospel. And so, consequently, there was a group that did uh, rightfully uh, become a barrier of, of love. That was what they said, a line of love to buffer the family uh, from these protests, and, and what's so, um, I guess what kind of galls me a little bit is that as they go by the name Westboro Baptist Church, um, though there's no known affiliation with any convention or association of Baptist uh, work, um, but nonetheless, that's them, and that's what they think, that's what they feel, and people are wrong every day. Um, we live in a society where it's free to be wrong and to express it. Um, and that's just part of what it is in America, and we, we like that about our country. Um, but we don't have to like what everything is said. And uh, I want to take you to 1 John 4 for several reasons, but um, verses 1 through 6, the, the author is really concerned about learning how to test the spirits. What is of God 
and what is not. What is true? What is false? And so in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, he focuses on the content of, of that which is antichrist. If anyone does not confess that Jesus, uh, that Jesus is Christ, then they are the spirit of antichrist. If they confess that he's not of God, then they are antichrist. It is wrong. And so there's the content pass part of a test. But it's interesting, he follows that right up with the theme that is throughout the book of loving. You see this in verses 7, and we're going to focus on verse 7 through 12. And, uh, and it's the spirit of, of love. He says, this also is evident as to whether someone is walking with God or not. Is there love in their life? All right. And so I want us to be the type of church that not only teaches the gospel, teaches the, the orthodox teaching of scripture of Jesus dying, being perfect without sin, born of a virgin, and that he lived and died on the cross as a substitute atonement for my sin, for your sin, the sin of the world, that he was put into the tomb and there resided three days and rose again on that third day and there walked among many and then ascended to be with the Father in heaven, that we believe the Bible is the word of God that is a confronting teaching, it was a revelation. We believe these things, but at the same time, it is not a contradiction at all to say we are a loving body. Because all that I shared with you is the love of God. And it is to be evident in how we walk and live. And so, um, when I when I picked this passage, it, Westboro was not even on my mind. Um, Elizabeth Edwards was not on my mind. But another thought. It's interesting, there's been a uniform reaction among believers sounding much like what I just said. Um, but I wonder, is it because it's Elizabeth Ed- Edwards? Because she's easy to like? What if it was Osama bin Laden? Just asking. You know, yeah. Are we going to debate about the level of sin? But I just want to make sure we're honest and we're consistent. Just because it's a sweet lady from the South who went through a lot of bad stuff does not mean that, okay, it's, it's, it's okay to resist this now because we love her. But what about people that we don't like as well in our society? Just a thought, all right? I don't, you know. Let's go. All right, go to First John chapter 4. Um, and I want to just talk about this. And, and then the title of this, this sermon is, is Love Out Loud Christmas Style, all right? Love Out Loud Christmas Style. Uh, this is a theme that we've been hitting on a lot through this year. And I just want you to see how this is evident in, in the Christmas story itself. First uh, John 4, 7 really brings it out. And so uh, it's, it's a, 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 this is the third and final time in the book that John appeals to the subject of brotherly love. You see this again or earlier in, in chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. You see it at the second time in chapter 3, verse 11 through 18, and then you see it for the last time here, uh, uh, for the third and final time here in chapter 4, verse 7. So I encourage you to uh, study these other passages. Uh, in fact, I'll be referring to some of them uh, and to see this theme that, that goes throughout. And so let's, uh, let's honor what we read together by standing as we read it. I'll read out loud. Uh, if you read silently, First John 4, verse 7 through 12. Beloved, 
Let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You may be seated. The simple uh, exhortation of John is that we love one another. So if you want to know what the sermon is about, and you forget it all, just remember that. Love one another. It's, it's the theme. And then he gives two reasons why we're to love one another. We're, we're going to look at that. But notice how he starts it off, beloved. In other words, he, hey, I, I love you guys. What I'm about to tell you and what I have been telling you, these things I've written to you that your joy might be full, these things that I've written to you that you may know you have eternal life, these things that I've written to you that your hope will be full, these things I've written, I'm, this is an act of love I'm giving to you, beloved, beloved. And so he practices what he's preaching here. Uh, he himself loves them and simply gives the injunction, let us love one another. And then he starts giving the reasons. So the first reason to love is simply God's nature that is imparted to us. The reason why we're to love, love one another, is because of God's nature, which is imparted to us. First of all, it says, for love is from God, okay? Now, don't think of this like a letter, that God's sending uh, love, and, and now we've got it, and we're running with it, okay? Uh, it's not so separate as a letter, but it is something that flows from His very person. Uh, it emanates from His presence, like heat from a fire, Okay, it, it flows from him, and so it, it, it goes with him. And we see this um, all throughout the Bible. Sometimes we make a big deal. Well, in the New Testament, God is the God of love. In the Old Testament, he's the God of wrath. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just that we don't, we don't focus on that. If, if we ever hear God giving judgment, it just sticks out so much in our brain uh, that, that God would do something like that. But notice that in Exodus chapter 25, you know, um, Ten Commandments, you heard of that? comes from Exodus 20, okay? Uh, notice he says in verse 6 uh, that God is showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, when God and Moses are having a very powerful, special moment, when, when God is revealing himself in a unique way to Moses. Uh, notice it says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Doesn't it sound like love to you? But here's what we remember. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. <laughs> oh my goodness. And that stands out in our brain. But all throughout, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God is stating that, that he is love. And love flows from him. And so notice what John says. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. All right. So it's an, it's an evident thing that we are partaking in his nature because we are, well, we exhibit the nature that God has. Isn't it something 
uh, as, as I'm looking and, and thinking about my kids, I don't know what it is, but we as parents, we always look at the negative stuff. You know what? Can you think, can you think of just two or three things that your children got from you that's positive? <laughs> Have you ever done that? I started thinking through that. I was like, and the first thing that came to mind was all the negative stuff. The stuff that, that just stands out in my brain, you know? It stands out in yours. We see these things, we see it in our kids, and we get all angry. We get mad at them. We're not really mad at them, are we? We're mad at us, aren't we? We get all, you know, you see someone really riling on the kids, think, man, they really, the parent really hates themselves. It, it, we see it. We see it in them. Uh, I, I think about, my, uh, I've, I've been claimed to be stubborn. Some folks have made that claims about me, you know. Um, I don't know if I believe it. But I do believe that sometimes my children can be. <laughs> and, and my wife tells me that comes from me. Um, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> about that, you know. Um, you know one of them, I, I like to get the last word normally. And there's one of my children that likes to do that too. And so, you know, I'm talking to Julie. It's like, you know, she really gets this from me, doesn't she? <laughs> and, and so that's how it is, isn't it? How do I know that... They're my kids. They may not look like my kids, but I can tell by how they act. My nature is imparted to them. All right? And when we get, a, when we get the extended family, get the generations together, it gets really fun because then we start blaming the grand, grandparents. And it goes on back, you know. Uh, and, but, but the thing is, it all comes from the same, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We recognize it in one another because we have it in us. And we get it from our dad and our mom who in turn goes all the way back. The nature that is imparted to us. Alright? Uh, we, we've passed it on. But here, here's the wonderful thing is that when I read this passage, it tells me that God can break the cycle. God can come in and intervene, have another advent, if you will. The, he's had one historically in the Christmas and Jesus coming, God as a man. But he can also have another advent in my lifetime and in your lifetime. In fact, if you don't have an advent in your lifetime, you're not a believer. There must be the coming of the Spirit of God in your life to break a cycle. That there is something within me that when I see my mean self, my insensitive self, my stubborn, my selfishness, that there is something within me that says, that's wrong. That's wrong. And then no one tells me that it's wrong, but then also gives me a new way of thinking and looking and having a heart that says, by the grace of God, I can be something other than how I was made, how I was born. It is love. It is the love of God that is imparted to us that comes from God. Now, we look at this passage, if we're just looking at verse 7, we think, well, okay, if anyone's love is a lover, then that means that they're of God. They're a child of God, right? They can love, bam, they're God's child. But you need to know something. He had already said in chapter 3, verse 23, he had made the point that God's children will be one not only who will love, but also who will believe, who believe in Jesus Christ. All right. He says that again in chapter 4, in just a few verses. So it's not just the ability of love, it is also that this is of Christ. That there's a trusting in Christ. Now, now here's the real question that comes. If this is true, if, 
if God's nature is imparted to us, and the first reason we love one another is because of God's nature imparted to us, if this is true, let me ask this question. When the world looks at this church, do they see a love that can only be explained by supernatural means? Let's take it more personal. When people see your life, do they see a love that can only be explained by God doing it? Let me tell you how that happens. It doesn't happen because you surround yourself with people who are like you. You don't surround yourself with just your family, even though that could be a supernatural activity of loving your family. Um, It happens when you're around people who are different from you. Who are different from you. And there is a love that is still there because anybody can love people who are like one another. Anybody can love people who are lovable. But the supernatural love comes when you're around people who are irritating, who are different, who are diametrically opposed to you sometimes, who could be maybe Elizabeth Edwards, and it could be maybe the Westboro Baptist group, or it could be others who try to attack our country. Anybody in America could love another American, but what does it mean when an American loves another group? who maybe hates an American. You see, it is when you dive into the differences that love becomes evident when it's supernatural. And so, love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, verse 8, he takes it to the negative way. That was a positive statement, not not negative version. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Well, it's because God is love. All right? Now, let me just make this statement. You cannot reverse that and say love is God. You cannot say love is God. Why? Because God is bigger than love. God is encompassing love, but love does not encompass God. All right? God is bigger than love. And so he states it, God is love. We need to be very careful about that. Uh, We can go into the sentimentality of just saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to love somebody because that's my way of worshiping. And I I get that, I understand that, and there's a lot of truth to that. But if you're saying that uh, this this is God, loving someone is God, then you've missed it. You've missed it, all right? Uh, So... It's very careful that he says that God is love. And so, when we have the nature of God, we have the Spirit of God, as Jesus himself said what would come, the Spirit of God would be in us. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love, whom the Spirit of God sheds abroad in our hearts. All right? So this is, this is what's going on here. Now, verse, uh, we keep on going here and we see verse 9. We've seen the first reason. Why, we, why, why do we love one another? Well, because God's nature has been imparted to us, all right? That's, that's why a church body ought to be a loving body because what makes the church a church is people submitted to God, trusting in God, consequently God giving him them his spirit. Without the spirit of God, we are not a church. We're not a church if, we're, if we don't have the spirit of God. It is the critical element of this body. 
And so that's why if someone wants to be a member of this church body, they must be a follower of Jesus, trusting in him and letting the Spirit of God reign and reside in their life. Otherwise, we're just a club. We're just a club. And so this is the key component of it. And so there is a love that goes one to another as we share with Christ, shares his spirit within us. Now, verse 9. Here's the second reason why we love one another. The second reason is how God's love was made evident. All right? Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. All right? And that's unique. It's literally one and only son into the world. Um, this separates us from Mormons here. Okay, um, So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. All right? That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a lot right here in verses 9 through uh, 10, 11, and let me, let me take some time on this. First of all, how did God reveal his love? How was it made evident? First, he gave an essential gift. You see this? Why is it essential? Verse 9, God gave his one and his only son, his unique son, so that we might live. <laughs> so that we might live through him. John 1.10 says that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. The one and only son, unique, came into this world so that we might have life. All right? What do we do with essential, critical, essential ingredients for life? What do we do with essential ingredients for life? A lot of things we take for granted because they're there. Oxygen. All right? God provided oxygen so that we might have life through oxygen. So, uh, everything's hunky and dory and we don't seek it much unless you don't have it. Right? I remember as a child, um, I discovered I was claustrophobic maybe through wrestling with my buddies and cousins. And, you know, inevitably, sometime, somewhere in your life, you get piled on and you're on the bottom. I remember being in the bottom of a, a hay bale or a hay little pit in, my, in the farm and, and, and all my cousins were on top of me. And I just, I just snapped. I just like all reasons out the door. I'm hitting, I'm punching, I'm, I'm plucking out eyes, I'm doing whatever I can. Give me some air. What am I doing? I'm diligently seeking oxygen. Alright? Because it, God had made me that through oxygen I might have life. Alright? Now the Bible says here that through Him, Christ, we might live. Alright? So what happens? Thing is, we're dead and we don't even know it. We don't even realize it. But if you can get a taste of what it is to have fellowship with Christ, fellowship with God through Him, there is a thirsting and a hunger. And you realize, I did not know that life was meant to be like this. And if ever something comes into your life that harms or hinders that presence of Christ, i.e. sin, rebellion against God, not trusting in Him, there is a, a, there is a clawing, there is a diligently seeking Him. I've got to have that which gives me life. That's Christmas. God stepping into history so that we might have life. He's giving us an essential gift. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one priest that does this for us. There is no other options. It's through Christ. Verse 10, And this is love. Not only do we see now the essential gift that God gives us at Christmas, we see the unwarranted gift. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. God's love is primary, not our love for God. Um, a lot of times in times of mourning, I don't know if it was said about Elizabeth Edwards, I, I don't doubt if it was, but usually in times of mourning, somebody well-meaning will say, if anybody is saved, that person's saved. And it's a well-meaning statement, but every time I hear it, there's something within me that just screams. I don't ever scream, all right? I don't, and in fact, I don't even say it because the context is totally wrong. But there's something within me that screams. No, that's not the gospel. Because usually what's stated is that if anyone's a believer, if anyone's saved, then this person is. Because what they're saying is that it's based on some lifestyle that they've lived or some acts of devotions made evident to Christ made evident to the church or to religion or some acts of piety or goodness that they were doing. Great. But listen, that is not the basis why we make a statement if anyone saved that person is. It's not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. Why is anyone saved? Because God first loved me. Everything else is just a response to what God has done. And not only, it's not just a response, it's, it's even less than that. It's God doing it in me. God doing it in me. God putting the spirit of love in me. It's not just a response. God's even taking care of the response. It's that He first loved me. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Why did God give this gift? One, because it was essential so that we might live through him. And by the way, we might live through him, not just that we might profess him. <laughs> you know what? We, we have the Christmas story, and, and we hear it, and we hear the Easter story, and think, oh, that's wonderful. Let me profess Jesus as my Savior. Let me bear the name of Christ. Let me be called a Christian. Let me be a member of church. Let me get baptized. Let me bear the label. He doesn't say... God sent His only Son that we might bear the label of Christ. God sent His only Son that we might profess Christ. God sent His one or His only Son to the world so that we might live through Him. So much more than profession. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. This is why God came through Jesus. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Why did Jesus come as a baby? Why did he die on the cross? To take away our sin. 1 John 3.8, why did Jesus come in, uh, in a manger? Why did he die on a cross? 1 John 3.8, whoever makes practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It was the beginning of the initiative, of the evident initiative of God, of attacking Satan and destroying him. But look, we see one more in verse 10. Why did Jesus come? Why did Christmas exist? Why did the cross exist? God sent his one and only Son into the world... Notice verse 10, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
All right, let me just share with you that this gift is not only a essential gift, it's not only an unwarranted gift, it is an expensive gift. It is an expensive gift. All right, the word propitiation, we don't use that often. Memorize it, it might be good in scramble someday. Um, but even better, it'll help you understand the Bible, all right? Um, this specific phrase, a specific word for propitiation, is only found here as well in chapter 2, verse 2. You find a similar word in some of the other passages. But the idea that's in this one is, is simply um, Jesus coming, dying on the cross, and in so doing, being forsaken by God and satisfying God's wrath for my sin and your sin. It is something of a, a satisfaction of, of God's wrath. Now, what I want you to note is it's God's love that set in motion the actions that would satisfy God's wrath. Sometimes we think of God the Father, he's the, he's the, he's the mean dad, you know. He's the one you got to watch your toes with because he'll call you out. And then there's Jesus. He's the good son. And, um, well, you know, if something goes wrong, I'm going to him because, you know, there's just going to be wrath over here. And so we think of, of Jesus kind of wrestling with God the Father and bam, you know, cross and resurrection and Jesus won. <laughs> no, okay? No. God's love satisfies God's wrath. In other words, God the Father, God the Son are in perfect unity all throughout in creation and in eternity. And they are working together. When, when God sees our sin... And sees our rebellion against God. Jesus, God the Son, has a holy wrath as well. And when there is forgiveness, we ask God, forgive us of our sins. Not that we love you, God, but that you love me. And that you sent your Son to satisfy this. And, and, and when that happens, it's not just God the Son that says, I will forgive you. It's God the Father that says, I will forgive you. And they are together acting. It is the love of God that's kissing the justice of God. And that looks like the cross with Jesus on it. When mercy and love and kindness and his holiness kiss together. It's found on the cross with Jesus dying and the resurrection. It is an expensive gift that Jesus did this. God sent his one unique son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. To satisfy the wrath of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. All right. If you're not careful, you think, well, this is an imitation thing. Jesus did this, so therefore I'm going to imitate him. No, what he's doing is just revealing the nature of God. And it says, this is the nature of God. Look, look how it became evident. Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at what he did. This just revealed what God thinks towards you. And I've said this time again, and I'm going to say it again because I don't think you can hear enough. When bad stuff happens in your life and you're questioning and you're thinking, is this what God really thinks of me? He really thinks this of me because of this bad thing? Listen, when God wanted to reveal what he thought about you, he did it on the cross. That was his chosen incident in history to be the vehicle of his revelation, to be the communication to you. And so when bad stuff happens, don't go into it thinking, man, God must really hate me. I'm going to tell you because of the cross, God loves you. When you look at these things that are happening, always have within the backdrop of these events, Jesus on the cross for you to help you get a good understanding of God's perspective. You got to have that. And so 
God loves us. We all also love one another. When we know, uh, when we see in Christmas, when we see on the cross, we see the evident nature of God's love. Because God loves this way, and he's given that same nature to you, we all also love one another. Not so much the motivation of imitation, but simply, John's telling us who we are. He's telling us who you are. He's like telling a bird, hey, you know what? You got some wings. Use those babies. Fly. All right? He's saying, you are a follower of Christ. I've given you a nature of love. Then love. It's what we ought to do. It is the nature that God has given to us. And so how do we do this? Well, as the moon reflects the sun... So our love for God and others is to be a reflection of his love for us. You know, we don't see the moon. It's not because the sun's not shining. It's because something's in the way that blocks the sun and the embrace the face of the sun to the moon. When there's a believer that's not loving, it's not because God's not loving. It's because there's something in their way that's keeping them from having a full relationship with God. And so, consequently, love for God has waned and lost. The love for others flows right with that. So what do we do? (laughs) You can never, ever think too much of God's love. You can never, ever spend too much time pondering what God's love is to us. Why, why are these Christmas traditions good? Because it gives us a moment in time and a schedule where we can ponder the love of God. When we have full face of God's love, it's amazing how that just flows out in response and God's working in our heart to love to him and to love to others. I want to share with you a story. Um, it goes back to the days of John Wesley. One of his associates, John Fletcher, uh, he was he was a preacher. This is going back to 1785, a long time ago. All right, this is uh, he was preaching, and as he's preaching, he gets weak, his voice falters. He 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 kind of works through uh, the sermon uh, as best he can. Folks, are, uh, it's obvious that he's not doing well. So they they take him, they help him to his house, uh, and get him into bed where the, la- the last time is stated never again to walk in this world. He slept much after that. Uh, but interesting enough, what he was preaching on was the love of God. But during his lucid moments, Polly, his wife, would read and pray with him. She later wrote, On Wednesday, he told me that he had received such a manifestation of the full meaning of these words, God is love, as he could never be able to express. It fills my heart, said he. Every moment, oh Polly, God is love. Shout, shout aloud. I want a gust to go to the ends of the earth. He then told her that should speech fail, he would tap her twice with his finger to signify their testimony to each other for God's love. The next day, his speech became more befuddled. Polly leaned over and whispered, God is love. Instantly, as if all his powers awakened, he broke out in rapture. God is love, love, love. Oh, for that gust of praise. Polly remained by his side. He was hardly able to utter another word. 
But he kept tapping her with his finger. At last, his lips moved again, and she heard him pray. Head of the church, be head of my wife. He sank quickly after that, yet frequently tapping Polly according to the sign. Until his precious soul entered into the joy of the Lord without one struggle or groan in the 56th year of his age. I'm going to tell you, the love of God, it carries you. It can carry you. I have nothing else to tell you that can carry you. There's nothing greater. There's no concept, no principle, no promise greater than the simple one that God loves you. He loves you. It becomes evident in how it carries us in our life. But it becomes evident in how we treat one another, doesn't it? Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another. It goes back to that same idea. Because here's the thing. Here's what it comes down to. We can talk about this. Sounds great. Wonderful. I mean, who can go wrong when you're talking about God's love? And you feel good. But it doesn't really matter all that you've listened to if it doesn't flow through you and doesn't impact the people around you. The Christian faith is not something for just mystics who hang out in a cave by themselves. All right? It's not just for people who stay in their study and sit there and read the Word of God. Ultimately, it comes out in how you treat people, how you treat them. You know... We read in verse 11 and 12, or rather verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Isn't that kind of, first struck me as, what does this have to do with anything? It's a little jarring. No one has ever seen God. It brings out this historical fact. No one has ever seen God. And the, the idea, the word seen is a prolonged observation. It's not just a passing glance. It studied and looked at the character, the look at the face of God. No one has ever seen God. Different from the way John said in John, uh, Jesus said in John 14, 9, Jesus said to the disciples, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's not the same kind of seeing that's being talked about here in 1 John. But then he says this, If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. That biting, getting that full face of God. Don't let anything hinder your relationship with him. Hear the word of God. Hear and, and let your hope set on who he is and his promises. That abiding aspect. What he's saying is, the people in your work, the people in your neighborhood, your friends, your family, they're not going to see God's face anywhere. Jesus, he's ascended. They can't see Jesus anymore. But he sent another comforter, the Spirit of God. And the fact simply is, the only hope they have of seeing God is through you. That's why we start praying for visions and dreams. God, maybe there'll be some other way. You know? We're it. We're the, we're the primary method. 
It's through us. And so that's why it says, love one another. Love one another. Let me just remind you of the story of Corey Ten Boone. Great example of love. Uh, if you're not familiar, Corey Ten Boone um, was helping Jews, ultimately was arrested in Nazi Germany, uh, put in prison camp, uh, concentration camp, Ravensbrück. Um, suffered miserably there. Her sister died there. Family died. Ten years after her release, she survived it. Corey ran into a lady who wouldn't look her in the eyes. So Corey asked about who this person was and was told that woman had been a nurse at a concentration camp. When she heard that, the memories just came right back to her. Corey remembered taking her sister, Betsy, to the infirmary to see that woman. Her feet were paralyzed. She was dying. The nurse had been very cruel and sharp-tongued. At that memory, she couldn't help but feeling the anger, the vengeance come back. Her rage so boiled that she knew but one thing to do. Forgive me, she cried out to the Lord. Forgive my hatred, O Lord. Teach me to love my enemies. The blood of Jesus Christ seemed to suddenly cool her embittered heart. And Corey felt the rage being displaced with the divine love she couldn't explain. She began praying for the woman. And one day shortly afterwards, she called the hospital where the nurse worked and invited the woman to a meeting at which she was speaking. What? You want me to come? Yes, that's why I called you. Then I'll come. That evening, the nurse listened carefully to her talk. And afterward, Corey sat down with her and opened her Bible and explained 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his one only son into the world that we might live through him. The woman seemed to thirst for Corey's quiet, confident words about God's love for us. His enemies. And that night, a former captive led her former captor to the decision that made the angels sing. God had taken Corey's subconscious feeling of hatred and transformed them and used them as a window through which his light could shine into a darkened heart. The fact of the matter is, for that nurse... Corey was the face of God and it looked like forgiveness and it looked like love. So who's seeing God around you? Do you believe God? Do you believe his love? Do you believe it enough to say, God, you know the hatred that's in my heart for this person? But let me ask you, do you believe that God is bigger than that hatred? It's a simple question, but it's one that's going to determine everything for you. Do you believe that God is bigger than your hatred? Do you believe that God is more powerful than your ingrained habits and quirks and stubbornness and pride? Do you believe that? And do you believe that God is love? If we don't, we'll just excuse it away and say, well, you know, this is just my quirks. I don't have to love like that. No, you do. God's nature has been given to you. It is the right way of worship. So when we come to Christmas time, I read 1 John 4, and it tells me Christmas, it was evidence of his love. But it wasn't just the fact that Jesus came. It wasn't just incarnation. It was atonement. 
It was that Jesus died on the cross so that his wrath for your sin and my sin could be taken care of and satisfied so that I don't have to. So Elizabeth Edwards, I don't know her, but I know people like her. (laughs) I know myself. She's probably no bastion of truth. She's probably got sin in her life. But there is forgiveness for her. There is a Savior who came for her. Osama bin Laden, I don't know him either. I know what he's like as far as the words he said, the actions he's done, the resources he's put toward us, against us. But I also know there's a Savior for him. A Savior that is greater than his sin. And you think, well, God, if that's true, where's justice? What about those 2,000 plus people that were killed? I'm going to tell you where the justice of God is. That same hatred for that sin of killing 2,000 plus people the things that's propagated continually, if this man would say, God, I need you as my Savior, I'm going to ask and believe in Jesus Christ that He forgave me my sins, what does God do with that justice? What does God do with that just anger? Jesus just became a Salman bin Laden. Jesus just became a Salman bin Laden. He was put up on the cross Two terrorists, insurrectionists, violent. He died with the terrorist. But just as angry as you might feel, or you might think God might feel about Osama bin Laden, God is just as angry with our sin, with our unbelief, with our selfishness. It may look more socially polite, but it is not before God. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus became you too. Why did he become you? Said that you might become righteous before God. He became poor so that you might become rich before God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You want that? He extends it to you. You just trust and believe. With all your heart, follow him as the most beautiful thing that's ever come across your mind. Let's pray.